What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Good news, folks. It's time for another round of PSA events in Australia. Sean Edwards, decoy, judge, and all-round good guy is coming back to Australia to run a seminar slash training weekend, and that's happening on June 2 and 3. Then on June 4 and 5, we're having a decoy certification. So if you're interested in having a crack at that, you need your own bite suit and a dog that knows how to target the bicep. You can bring someone else's dog and they can come handle it. That's fine, but it's one dog per person. And then on June 9 and 10, we're going to have a trial. All that's happening in Sydney. And so if you're interested in that, hop onto Facebook. The Iron Fist PSA Facebook page has all the details and registration forms there. If you don't know who Sean Edwards is, he's otherwise known as... The Deadpool Decoy. The Deadpool Decoy. And if you don't know who Sean Edwards is, like, who are you? You haven't been Honestly. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Glenn Cook, and joined in studio is my co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. This episode, what we're going to talk about is a while back, Pat was doing a private lesson where he had a greyhound that was harassing a cat. Pat, why don't you take over now and tell the story about what happened so the listeners mm-hmm. can get a bit of an idea of what happened, and yeah. then we can start talking about what we did, So or what you did. The gist is that a while ago, my sister got a greyhound, and it's an ex-racing greyhound. It had won, it had actually won a couple of races, and she got it from a greyhound rescue, and it hadn't passed its greenhound assessment. It hadn't sat it, and she, she had to prep it for that. And it was a real racing greyhound, had a lot of prey drive, but was now retired and pretty relaxed with a dog. I think it's about four years old. And she has a cat and the rescue organization had no idea how the dog would react around a cat. Yep. So she got the dog home and put it in front of the cat, all so, on leash, sorry, everything so sorry. controlled. They got a racing greyhound yep. and they weren't sure how the, yeah, how that's the right. racing greyhound would react around a cat. Well, weren't sure because <laughs> it hadn't been it hadn't been assessed. Okay, but, um, right. Everybody probably knew how it was going to go. Yep. And they were a little bit concerned, I think, in rehoming it with my sister, but she... You know, she knows dogs a little bit. She's a vet nurse and she's got a lot of animals. And she said, look, I, I want this dog and I love my cat. So I'm yep. not going to do anything stupid. Okay. So I gave her the opportunity. But when she put the dog in front of the cat, it locked in prey so hard she couldn't break it out mm. and nothing could stop it. So it was very clear that the cat's days were numbered. Yep. So she called me and I have never done that before. I've never, that's the first time I've had to. Work um, with impulse control. Well, well, I've worked with impulse, I've done heaps of impulse control, but not in that specific a greyhound to stop it chasing a cat. I've never mm. done that before. So she called me and was like, hey, can you help me out? And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to apply my knowledge of dog behavior in a non-specific manner. So mm. how am I going to figure this out? And it was largely, you know, uh, as when Bart was here, we spoke about it with Bart and he said there was an excellent example of the Nipopo system to change behavior. And it was worth talking about because a lot of people think that that Nipopo is just purely for high drive dogs and it's just for sport competitors where the truth is it's a lifestyle and you can change behavior with it certainly. Which is why Michael and Bart adapted it from 
the old Nipopo into the new Nipopo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which, so, it, and if you've been a fan of the show for a while and listened to certain things that Pat has said and even Bart said in his podcast, the reason he did that was because they were trying to open it up to a broad range of people. So mm. it wasn't just limited to sport people. Yeah. And now general public can partake in that style of training as well. And like other types of training, it is a lifestyle training platform. Yeah. And largely the old Nipopo is designed for an extreme dog. Yes. And the new Nipopo is for every dog. Yep. So she has this cat. The good news is we can say now it's a happy ending, right? But she has this cat and the dog is completely locked in prey. It can't pay any attention. She tells me that she can't take food, won't take anything. It's unresponsive to like leash corrections. It's just locked in prey. It's Fenton. Yeah. 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 We've got to put that clip on too of Fenton. So Did pe- we not after that other episode? I don't think we, we have. We must have forgotten. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, that's so definitely we need, going So we up. need to have Fenton up so people can get a grasp of how locked in prey these dogs can actually get. Yeah. So the first thing we did was change food. So we changed the dog's food. I don't even know what it was on, but we changed it to a very high calorie nutrient dense food that meant that we were feeding the dog less volume, mm. but it was getting all of its necessary nutrients and, and whatnot in a smaller package. So the dog felt hungry and we downed that food a little bit to maybe like two thirds of what the dog would eat normally. So the dog was constantly in a state of arousal for food. Yep. And so that was the first thing, a change of food. Then we brought in the clicker and well, along the at the same time we brought in the clicker. So so the, the dog had never been trained to a clicker before? No, nah, the clicker had no value to the right. dog. Okay. So we brought in the clicker and the dog only got to eat after hearing the clicker and we made the click uh, highly variable, i.e. the clicker didn't announce one piece of kibble. The clicker didn't announce the whole bowl of kibble. It announced both of those things and everything in between. So just the potential. The potential for food. Yeah. But the potential for food that it needed. Mm. So for about, I think it took her about two weeks, the dog became accustomed to the clicker and became more into food than it was Previously, it had decent food drive, yep. but now it had quite high arousal for food. And mm. the click, we knew, I said, we know the dog's ready when he's asleep on the couch over there. You're in the kitchen and you click and he comes flying over and is demanding food. Yep. So we got to that point pretty quick. My sister, is she took it very seriously. She's got quite good skills with animals, obviously. So she was able to do that very quickly. Mm. So now we have to start introducing, and during this time, they're completely separate. Right. They have no interaction with each other, the dog and the cat. They're just being managed at this point. Perfect. So now we want to introduce the dog to the cat. So the first thing we did was I think she put the cat the very first time in a dog crate. Yeah. had it in the room. Yep. And the dog just locked in prey completely mm-hmm. when it saw the cat. The cat was totally static sitting in this crate. She clicked and the dog didn't turn, paid no attention to the click. So that was it. That's session for the day. Do the same thing again now. So that was a morning session. Dog gets offered his food after the click, chose to totally ignore it, couldn't break out of that prey lock to hear the click, no food. Same session sets up 12 hours later. When she so no food morning. at all, like total, no okay, to- good. Missed okay. his morning feed. Yes, good. 12 hours later, we set up the same situation. Yep. Cat's in the crate and it was as minimal arousal as we could get, but still be introduction. Yep. So the dog's on the total other side of the room. They're not like right up close to each other. Yep. The cat's in the crate, he's not doing anything, he's just sitting there. Which is important, right? Yeah, totally. And, th- and this is what people have got to understand with any type of counter-conditioning process or systematic desensitization is that the stimuli must be present mm-hmm. in order or effect of the change of behavior to take place. Yeah. However, if it's at such high intensity, 
then the primarily overwrites how the dog feels about everything and you get a shutdown mode where the dog is just extreme about the behavior and can't think of anything else. Exactly. Yeah. So we were trying to surf that rim of mm. keeping the dog at the, the greatest distance. And, and in her house, we had it. It was literally furthest possible points, but still visible. Perfect. And I think it was, I think it was two and a half days before the dog broke out of prey and turned around and ate the food. Awesome. So we know then, so obviously that's a hungry dog and this greyhound doesn't have a lot of body weight to lose. Yep. And it had been on a reduced calorie to show it the, the necessity for food along the way. Yep. So that, I think that first two and a half days of that point is probably the hardest in the whole process. If yep. you, if anyone else was to do this and my sister, she did a great job and, but I'm sure that she probably struggled with it a little bit. A lot bit. of people would cave. Yeah. The idea yeah, that the, I'm not feeding the dog. Yeah. And it's fasting. We, we've spoken about that before that a dog can go a couple of days without food. It's uh, not the end of the Actually, they're going to have Narelle on the show again soon. We're going to talk about that inclusively. Rodney Habib did a lot of research when he started the cancer series mm -hmm. and found that dogs can actually go a lot longer without food than we actually imagine. Mm -hmm. They actually did a, a test on the enzymes and the muscles of the dogs to find out if breakdown was occurring, if proteins weren't being delivered through food. The first time they did it was like 40 days mm -hmm. and then they stopped the program and then they restarted it again. I'll get Narelle to talk about it because she studied the program a little bit more, but uh, I believe they got the dog up to something like 100 plus days mm. without food and they had no protein breakdown in the muscles at all. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it just goes to show that we think a day or two is like torment and we have a morality issue with it. And look, to be honest, I wouldn't want to not feed my dog for like 40, yeah, of 40 course. plus days. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's... Sometimes when you talk about things like this, people start thinking, oh, he's saying that you, yeah. you can do this and there's no morality issue with it. I'm not suggesting that at all. However, I'm sorry I'm jumping in on what you're talking no, about because I know ahead. you're keen to go. I uh, think it's important that we validate all that is, so that people absolutely. understand that Where not only stand. that it's okay to do it, but that why we know it's okay. Yeah, why we know it's okay through science, mm. which a lot of people validate as an, as an important point, and I understand that. It's also known to us as a culture that intermittent fasting is actually highly beneficial for your... It's even been measured that your immune system can reboot mm -hmm. from days of fasting. So they say that three days or 72 hours of fasting, solid fasting, can actually reboot your immune system. So there are high benefits to actually fasting that people don't look at. Like people think of it as starvation, etc., etc. In the wild, animals go fasting for long periods of time. Then they hunt, kill, eat and gorge. And I know the domestic dog is set up differently than the wild counterpart. However, you still got to remember that this is an actual applicable case. While we're on tangents and talking fasting, so in line with my, my stupid diet. Here comes obsession. the cat diet. Yeah, yeah so that's talk. what I'm doing now. But So I've always really done intermittent fasting at least sort of 14 hours. Mm. And at the moment, I'm trying to hit sort of 20 hours at least three days a week or four days a week. There's evidence to say that these type of 5-2 diets and so forth are you know, where you yeah. eat very, very limited, if at all. Well, because I'm a disgusting fat pig, I like to gorge myself and I just figure if I just do that once a day, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> better than doing that three times a day. And so, you know, well, the jury's out on that. We'll see how I go. One day we're all going to go to your funeral, you know, and we're going to say, uh, I don't think this diet works so well. <laughs> yeah, when I'm on the uranium diet. <laughs> okay. The point was that it's okay using 
withholding food as a training tool with your dog is okay to do, especially in a situation like this where it has to be resolved or yep. the dog's going back to the rescue or, or the cat's getting eaten and neither of those are acceptable. Or the dog can be euthanized because it yeah. has no purpose anymore. So withholding food for a few days is probably the most difficult thing to do. And when I'm giving this advice to people, I can tell they have no intention to do it. Like they smile and say, oh, okay, yeah, I won't do that. But then they won't do it. Yep. And I struggle with it with my own dogs. It's very difficult when you you set up a training scenario, food's the reward that you have available and the dog chooses not to do it, to then say, okay, well, you don't get fed. I'm not ignorant to the fact that how difficult that is to do. Just delivering that bad news is is hard in and of itself. And a lot of the time I see people just like, can't I just correct him? Can't I yank and crank him? And I'm like, in that circumstance, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Certainly in this Greyhound one, that wouldn't have worked. Yeah. But if we want to stay positive and we should, our goal is to be as positive as possible in our training. Until we can't. Yeah. The mm. punishment of when you're in positive, the punishment is that withholding. So if we feed the dog later outside of that training opportunity, then we're not able to punish the dog in any way, shape or form. Yeah. So that's what we did. So the first step was loading the clicker and loading the clicker with existential food with some power. So you want to be able to bring a sleeping dog out in a click release style. So the dog's asleep on the couch, click and the dog comes flying over to you and starts demanding food and yep. got a little bit pushy for the food as well. It's what we want. So then we introduced the- Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we want. So then we introduced the stimuli being the cat in the lowest level that we possibly could yep. while peaking an arousal in the dog at the minimum we could manage- click off a of food and the dog didn't take it. So we did that and I think she did that for two and a half days. I'm pretty sure that's what it was before the dog turned around and ate some food. I'm pretty sure it wasn't the whole amount, but turned around and was able to break itself out of prey. So then we slowly started introducing... Th so mind you, this was 100% of the dog's training at this point. The dog barely knew its name. She'd just gotten it. Had no recall, had no functional obedience, nothing because all of her training opportunities all of her food was being used to desensitize to the cat it was her 100 percent focus during this time yep because the dog's totally livable anyway he had and she lives on a, a property so it's not like she was taking it anywhere didn't need to teach it loose leash walking it just was fine so for a long while the dog only ate in the presence of the cat and before too long he could do that quite easily with the cat in the crate he could eat the whole whole meal then she progressed to, now we put the dog on, well, he was on leash the whole time, but now we put him on a slip leash. Yep. And we have the cat outside the crate, right? And the cat knew what was good for it. It would leave immediately. So it would be, the dog would be introduced to the cat, someone holding the cat. The dog leans into the slip leash pressure. So nothing happens. The dog's at the same distance, whereas it was before. Yep. The dog leans into slip leash pressure, puts a little bit of the knee-po onto itself, the mm -hmm. knee. As soon as it gave into that pressure... Just a millimetre, as soon as it tried in any way, shape or form to remove the, the pressure, she would give that active release, as Chad talked about before. Yep. Click and deliver the food. Great. So the dog's learning that the presence of the cat brings food to me, but paying attention to the cat is not desirable, just mm. puts me into pressure. And it's just slip leash pressure, nothing crazy. The moment he gives into the idea that he's not going to go forward towards the cat and makes any sort of backwards what would be the word there, inclination or tendency or just any sort of rearward movement away from the cat. Yeah, it's an exiting behavior. Exactly. Well, mm. perfectly termed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> all the pressure comes off, click, and the whole food, the whole meal is delivered. Yeah. The amazing thing about that too, mate, is that in that situation, the dog comes to terms with I'm controlling what happens here with totally. pressure. Yeah. 
essentially it learns I'm controlling not only can I control what happens with pressure, but I can also control making this person give me food. Yeah. I think one of the most astounding things about this is when you actually look into dog behavior, the dog is actually functioning in a way where it believes I'm controlling everything that happens to me at this yeah. point in time. And it's a real awakening in the dog's brain. It's a marvelous thing when you actually watch the dog work that out. And the best trainers, best handlers, they work that system well with their dog where they don't interfere too much. They just make it possible that the dog comes to that point in its life where it thinks to itself, now I'm controlling all the negative that happens to me. I'm controlling all the positive that happens to me. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing to actually see it. Yeah. And if you're paying attention to a lot of dogs that you're working with, whether you be in a class situation, a private lesson like you were doing with your sister, I can't think of a better thing to actually watch that transformation take place. Mm. Something I should just point out, as you mentioned, it being my sister, and this is the first time I've been involved in a greyhound doing this, was I have had calls about this in the past and said, no, I, I don't have any expertise in that. This is something that is quite serious and you should go to someone else who focuses on it. Yeah. But it was my sister and I wanted to experiment and I knew that she would do exactly what I said. Yes. And I was confident it would come through. So that's why it's relevant that I mentioned it was my sister doing it because I knew that- It's a but, controlled environment. Well, and first of all, I wasn't charging. I didn't want to take money off anyone that yep. I wasn't sure that would work. I was very confident it would, but also I knew that she would follow through and I could hound her if she didn't, though mm. I never had to. I could hound her and be like, hey, make sure you're doing this program because it's an experiment for me. I want to see whether it works or not. Right? Absolutely. And so as you are saying, the dog's learning to control all the pressure. But what also happens is, I think when we talk about classical conditioning, people understand really easily that the clicker announces food. They understand Pavlov. We've talked about it before, that he rang his bell, the dogs got fed. Before too long, the dog salivated at the sound of the bell. Dog can't control his salivation. So it's really easy when you think about clear signals. But what people sort of miss is that there's loads of things that get classically conditioned along the way. Heaps. And you may or may not realize that they are. So well, anytime stuff. you pair a feeling to something else, like the pairing of a feeling to a formerly inanimate object, like yeah. for example, the cushion on the couch that's there. If I say something to you and whack you on the head with it, after a period of time, you're going to have an aversion to that pillow. Yeah. Like you're going to feel something to it, especially if you see me going to touch it. Yeah. Like straight away, we've got a classically conditioned effect there. And yeah. that can be done positive. I can give you $50 while I'm holding the cushion and yeah. I can make you feel excited about the cushion. So what people don't realize is that they've done this a lot in their life. Like I regularly ask students in NDTF courses, have you classically conditioned a dog before? And they usually say, nah, no, nah, haven't done it yet. I'll say, all right, whose dog is excited by seeing the lead when you're going for a walk? And they say, oh yeah. And I said, you've classically conditioned yeah, your exactly. dog. Exactly. Yeah. So to make that a little bit more complex, well, not more complex, it's the simplicity of it is there, but to explain it, is that the presence of the cat became a con well? First of all, that the slip lead, the dog would dive into the slip lead because he knows I only eat with this thing on. Yeah, potential right? happens. Yeah. Mm. Then the cat gets brought out of the other room, and the dog shows an arousal, but the arousal slowly unwinded from prey onto the cat to excitement for the food because he knows I only eat in the presence of that cat. Mm. So what happens in the and, and if he was never he'd never ate anything outside the presence of the cat. So it's a once we started. that's actually a combination of operant and classical working well together. Yeah. Which it should be. It should yeah, be a exactly. well paired situation where the two of them combine and they interlock like a it's almost like a Lego brick. Yeah. They just interlock well together exactly. and then you get that profound effect. And so what's happening in the dog's mind is that he knows I need that cat around. Yeah. I need to see that He's cat. He's my survival mechanism. Yeah. Hmm. And what I told her as well, and I don't know how often this happened, but it, it certainly would have happened enough times that 
it became relevant to the dog was I said, don't train. You're going to feed the dog morning and night and you've got opportunity to train morning and night. Don't do that seven days a week. Mm. Miss the odd morning. Miss the odd evening. So the dog realizes, unless we set up this bullshit scenario that I didn't, I hated to begin with, unless we go through this rigmarole, I'll die. Yep. Right? He realizes that. He thinks, I will not get to eat outside of this. Because the truth is, dogs are our prisoners, really, right? They get what we give them. Pretty much. And he lived, he had no opportunity to scavenge for food himself. Mm. So he lived there and he was like, okay, I need to go through all this. I need this to happen in order to get my food. And I'm willing to do it because I've learned that unless it happens, I won't get fed. So we're at the point now where someone holding the cat, so the cat's not doing anything that would solicit any prey other than existing. Someone's holding the cat, getting closer. And so the cat's outside the crate, one person working the dog. And we're doing, now we start escalating to a few reps. So the dog sees the cat, locks on, pressure goes on. Immediately it starts to release the pressure itself, turns around and gets fed. And instead of just jackpotting the whole meal, now we're sort of, you know, you get one or two here yep. and she might've done always less than 10 reps per session and that the whole meal gets delivered. So long as the dog pays attention, he eats everything that was presented. Yep. No matter how much she presented to give him, always just his kibble. No matter how much was presented, he had to eat the whole lot. Whether it was one piece, 10 pieces, the whole lot in one go, it doesn't matter. He had to eat it. Mm. As soon as the session was done, the cat would go away. So pretty soon, before too long, every time this scenario got set up, there was no more pressure. The dog knew, I just stay out of this lip leash pressure. You, we're gonna, you're going to walk me over to this cat. You'll click, I'll feed, right? And that is aware of the cat being there, but yep. no longer locking onto the cat. So it sounds good, right? It sounds like we're on track. But now the cat has to move. You yep. have to go back to that. So what we did- Which creates an awakening to yeah, start with. Yes. Exactly. Yep. So then in all of our minds, we look at that and we go, they're living together and got to the point where there's no more pressure on the lead. The cat is just sitting there. The cat will learn to accept that I'll just sit here around the dog. And the dog's aware of the cat, not paying any attention. You think, well, they're, they're existing together, right? In static behavior. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yep>. Right. Disaster <laughs> still is ready to exist. Yep. So we tested that and proved it conclusively by we put the cat in the crate. We walk the dog over to the crate. He's basically, we've got the bowl of food ready. He's looking at the food ready, thinking this is it. I'm going to eat. I'm in the presence of the cat. We put the food bowl down next to the cat in the crate, open the door of the crate, knowing the cat would run away, right? Because he hasn't had a close, this close an interaction with the, the dog before. As soon as the crate door is open, the dog looks up and watches the cat escape and goes back to something very similar to the original prey. Yep. While he's looking up, the food bowl gets pulled out from underneath him. The cat disappears. He's very quickly gone and out of the range of the dog. Mind you, and the dog's on leash as well, right? So he can't yep. chase even if he wanted to. Though he didn't actually chase. He just looked as it happened, felt the pressure, and then went back down to his meal, which had gone. Mm. So then he's, he realizes, I was aware of the cat. I know the cat's there. The cat announces food for me. The cat kicked him back into prey drive. He looked and paid attention to the, the running cat. Mm. And in that moment, we stole his whole bowl of food. He only ate a very small amount of it, stole it out from underneath him. He looks back down, it's disappeared. So in his mind, he thinks, if I pay attention to the fleeing cat, no more food. Yep. And his instinctive goal wasn't reach, which was catching and killing the cat. Yep. Yep. So uh, along the way, that's a great point, was we made sure that could never, ever happen. He yeah, was a controlled never, environment. He was never in a position yeah. where he could actually run after the cat. He was always on lead and controlled. I tell you what, the cat was a good sport going through all this. The cat did pretty well. Mm. It's, a, it's a quite a gutsy little cat, which is yeah. why 
just managing them was never going to be possible. Which you've also got to take into account when you're doing this type of experimentation is that you've got to have, make sure that this is, isn't going to be a traumatic experience for the cat. Yeah. Because there is going to be some stress and trauma for it initially. But in a controlled environment like this, it's not undue. Mm. So a lot of people worry about this type of experimentation, say, you know, the it starts off about, oh, the poor dog, it's got to go through all this. And then they go, it's like, what's that clip of that comedian? What's his name? Drew Drew Lynch? Is that oh, his yeah. name? Yeah. Where he's talking about the girl getting upset about his dog sitting on the floor and go, oh, but I'm an empath. <laughs> it's, I see a lot of that, the same type of work yeah, where yeah. we get, they start off on the dog side. Oh, you know, he's not eating food and he's doing this. But they don't understand. They're not looking at the long-term objective here. Yeah. And then they start worrying about the cat. But in your environment... You did everything well. The instinctive goal of the dog was never met. Couldn't get to the cat. Yeah. Couldn't actually reach it and and connect with it. And the cat was okay with it. Mm. So in those type of situations, we're doing well. Yeah. And I'm under no illusions. The cat was not having a good time through all of this. He's a gutsy cat. And the part, the reason it had to be done is management of the two was going to be long-term impossible because right. the cat is gutsy. He moves around yeah. and he'll find himself in a position where he's in the face of the dog. And you're managing your risks. Exactly. Mm. And And- in, as I say, with everything, Nipopo being a lifestyle, you got to go through some hardship to have a good life. That's yep. the system. That's the whole point of it, right? So, so the dog is looks up. The, the food disappears. We set up the exact same scenario. So no more food. Set yep. it all up to the point where the cat can run out. The dog eats the whole thing, and that didn't take long at all because the dog has learnt all these procedures at the lower end. Mm. So now at the higher end, where the cat literally is going to run within an inch, like or two inches of his nose, straight out the door. He can't get to him because, you know, like it's a wire crate that open, set up to open towards the dog. Yep. But running across his front while he's eating is the cat. And before too long, the exact same thing. The dog just totally ignores the cat and eats the food. So now we've got to... Awesome. Yeah. So now we've yep. got to introduce... We've got to get rid of some of those control mechanisms. The you crate. got the stakes. Yeah. Mm. So then same deal. We set up like a a surprise type scenario on the dog. So the dog sees this happening and goes, okay, this is training. I understand this is an opportunity to eat. Mm. This is, you're going to, you're going to put the cat somewhere. I'm going to see, I'm going to notice the cat. I'm going to ignore the cat and then I'm going to get to eat my food. Now we need to go, okay, this is real life as well. Right. Yep. So the dog being a greyhound is just chilling out on the couch. What we had to do was implement that he wore a slip lead from time to time for no reason. We had to make that his real life just because we needed to be able to control the safety in this environment. Right. And the dog's just chilling out on the couch. They're watching TV, whatever. And someone comes in carrying the cat, right? And the dog becomes alert to the idea that the cat's in the room. As soon as he shows any like, oh, the cat's here, click feed, right? So he's like, the cat, yes, the presence of the cat announces good things. You understanding that the cat here announces good things is is true, yep. but you're not going to get to interact with the cat. And then that went on for a few days as well, where the, or probably a week of this, where the, the cat just got brought in. The dog, as soon as he became aware, could smell that the cat is around, that just got fed. And in lower and lower arousal as well. So at this point is where we faded out the clicker because the clicker was, you know, like the big jackpot or mm. the potential of a big jackpot could be anything. So now when the dog starts like showing any sort of anticipation of the cat, he just gets fed on the spot to the point where the cat can be brought out. And we did a session of exactly this where the, the dog's asleep on the couch, right. or just chilling on the couch. The cat gets brought up and sat down with held by the person sitting next to the dog. The dog kind of looks up, sees a cat, looks back to the person that he was laying there with. It's like, hey, you have to give me the food. This yep. is what I need. And then 
the dog sort of gets a couple of pieces of kibble. Here you go, relax, and can now relax, controlled, on the couch. And then the person holding the cat lets go. The cat runs away, and the dog instead of locking onto the cat, spun and looked perfect, and was said, "Hey, the cat ran away. You I have did my to, job." Yep. Well, the cat ran away. He kicked me into prey, and I'm going to focus that onto you. You have to feed me. Yep. And they did. And then that's when the click jackpot, mm. right? Here you go. So then that stage was where we said, okay, well, that's pretty much a desensitized yep. dog. Now we have to sort of have happenstance, right? Where the cat just comes around. So now you've got the slip lead on and we're walking around and we have to have the cat uncontrolled by a person engage with the dog. And the exact same thing happened. So after a couple of sessions, the dog encountered the cat randomly. Mm. Dog turns immediately and says, hey, you have to feed me. I saw the cat. So what's happened in the dog's mind, we're guessing because we can't interview the dog yet, Boyd Hooper. (laughs) (laughs) Well plugged. (laughs) Uh, We're guessing is that he sees a cat and he goes, that's my trigger to eat. You have to feed me. I saw the cat, right? And he turns around and eats. Then we start desensitizing that a little bit where exactly, as I said, instead of clicking every time and it's a big reward event for the dog, it's just like, oh yeah, you did the right thing. And we fade out that the cat means food so much. It's just a little bit of a good boy. Here's a pat, maybe a little bit of food yep. and no big engagement, but also you're not allowed to lock onto the dog. And we're always So you started ready. very much on a continuous schedule. Yeah, 100% and continuous. And now you're moving into intermittent. Exactly. Yep. So the dog then is experiencing the cat knows that this is something that has value to me. I need him around. But if at any stage he showed too much attention to the cat, he was brought into pressure. Yep. And for a very short period, because the dog had learned at the back end of all of this, that the pressure is means you're never going to get to the cat. That slip leg goes light, tight, you're never going to get to him. You may as well give into it right away because the quicker you turn off that pressure, the quicker the reward will come. And we phase out that reward, right? So it's there exactly as you say, it's 100% at the start and intermittent later to the point. It and, must be. And, it and, has to be. And it, intermittent to the point where it's almost not there. It's yeah. only there enough to keep it alive. Mm. And so then they bring this outside. They do that same experience, that same test in a whole lot of different environments. Mm. But is the dog ready yet? No, because he's still on lead. Yeah. Right. We need to test all of this and proof it off lead. And now that's the crazy management difficulty, right? So that's where... We had like baby gates and all kinds of things. The dog has to just experience the cat outside of a formal training session. It is formal, but he needs to not realize that. Yep. He needs to be no equipment because that's how he's going to experience the cat when he's at home. Yep. And he needs to see the cat, make the right decision, turn around. So we set that up and that was tricky with gates and all kinds of things. So the dog thinks he can get to the cat, but he can't. And yep. there's people so in place. So still controlled. Controlled, yep. but outside of we hope. The dog's awareness yep. so that he thinks, he thinks if I really wanted to, I could, but I choose not to. Mm. A few sessions of that and the dog never went for the cat. So now they, they live together. They don't cuddle on the couch, but they're in they the same They tolerate house. each other. Yeah, they put up with each other. Yeah. It was a very normal approach. It would be what I would do with loads of different desensitized counter condition things, mm. but in a different application that I'd never used before. Yeah. And with a really good success. Yeah, there's a long application of tools that have got to be applied here. And this is effectively what con people call the long con, mm. where they're playing the game out over a long period of time. This is where most people give up because this is like dieting or training at the gym or anything, playing an instrument where you have the potential to become great at it and achieve a great outcome, but through laziness and... Indifference. Indifference. Apathy. Apathy was the word I was looking for. So... 
by being apathetic to it, a lot of people miss the opportunity that they can create something significantly marvelous like this. Like that whole story is very impressive for the point in that for a greyhound, it's so difficult for a dog to bypass something that it's been raised and procreated for to chase down prey mm. and catch it and kill it. And is a good one at it as well. Like, and is good, yeah. Ashley raced. The amount of, you know, I, I don't know the stats, but the amount of dogs that are bred for that and never even hit the track uh, is huge. Mm. This one was on the track, had wins, so it certainly did have all that prey drive. And we have no idea. I'm not suggesting that it was, but we have no idea if this dog has been live baited before. Yeah, no idea, no idea. Where that increases that stimuli and that drive yep. to complete that behaviour. So, mate, fantastic effort. How's, yeah. how's it going today? Yeah, so they live together. This was over. So this took a long time. This, I think this is one of the things that why it's not so applicable to the average pet owner. Mm. And if you are a trainer listening and you think, I'm going to give this a go, then you need someone that's going to follow through because if you miss any the of those timeline? steps. How long did it take? Uh, it was probably three months. Okay. About three months. Three yeah. months of how many times a week? Every day. Every, every day. day. The dog did You were not, there every day? Or oh, no. Was... I was just there on the weekends and I only caught up with her. She kept me up to date with what was going on. Yeah. And I think in that time, I think I was only physically there for three or four of the sessions, the start and the end really, and a couple in the middle to make sure she was on track. So you you laid out the plan and you set up all the next steps. Yeah. So she would take something to a certain degree and yep. then you would say, okay, now what we're going to do is as a next step, we're going to do this. Yeah. As a next, now that you're here, we're, as a next step, we're going to do this. Yeah. Which I think And is, when it's ready, yeah, let me know. Mm-hmm. And then we go out and- I checked out, yeah, okay, it does exactly the way you said. Yep. Let's go to the next step. And then that session, we do the next step. As therapy, that type of system is the way it has to be. Like mm. even if you go and see somebody in psychiatry or psychology, etc. if you go and see them, what they're doing is giving you steps in life, things to do to change the way that you felt about something. So current feelings, they're trying to repress them and bring you back to parity with feeling different about how you felt about something in your past, which is mm-hmm. effectively what you did with a greyhound, mm-hmm. made it feel differently about an instinctive goal that it felt like it was justified in doing. Mm. I see a little animal, I'm going to chase it and catch it because this is what I've been yeah, praised and for and rewarded so highly before in the past. And not only just want to do that, but it, at the cost of everything else, like mm. I couldn't take food, was totally locked in prey. Yeah, And that's the sort of point where I don't think, not that we – attempted it and not that I have with a greyhound, but I don't know what their level of, level of gameness or pain tolerance is in that. Like, I don't know at what point they would give up on the idea of chasing the cat in a pain compliance type way. I, I don't know. They will break themselves to pieces. They'll rip muscle, you know, break bones and still yep. try to gallop after the, the cat. If That's they, what I'm or, guessing. Or the, the prey item if they possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... So what do you learn from it? Well, I learned that counter conditioning with food, existential food, is yep. incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think that it's an understated. It would be easier, and I don't know if it's effective or, but certainly quicker to try and punish that behavioural way physically, mm. sort of crank it out. And I, I don't know that it would work particularly well, but I think that's the the path that a lot of people would choose to go down in that. And But playing that long game, like you say, and doing each step, developing the groundwork in every level was so important. Mm. And and I, I'm certainly I'm positive that teaching the, the existential food to start with was the first step. So yep. no pressure, no training, no cat, no nothing. Just click means food you need to live. Yep. Making sure that that is instilled by your click and the dog comes running in for food. 
out of drive. So the dog that doesn't even realize this is a training session, he's asleep on the couch, you click and he comes running over. Yep. I think that's very, very important. And then teaching how to find, how to get out of pressure in the lowest possible arousal was the next really important step. And without those two, they're really the bedrock foundations of this type of counter conditioning. Mm. They're the bedrock foundations for the whole thing. And if you, if you skip that or try to rush that and thought, oh yeah, it's ready, then it, it, it's not going to work. Mm. Like I think that a lot of people would, would want to, and I, I certainly have been tempted to try and do that kind of training and just present the food without first instilling that clicker as a marker for necessary food. And I think that that is unfair to do. I think you first must teach all the pressure before you teach any behavior. So food is pressure, right? You, you're relieving the pressure of hunger. Mm. So teach that first, this one tiny increment that is going to be so important, but is so, so important to the picture, but seems so insignificant that the clicker has to announce existential food and the relief of hunger. Yep. That's what the clicker is announcing to the dog. Mm. And then when we bring in the slip leash to announce that you will not make any forward progress under that pressure, you're only bringing yourself discomfort. And the moment you take it off, you get the comfort of the relief, but also the extra comfort of the reward. Which is a double reinforcer. Exactly. Mm. The knee popo. Yep. So the dog understands that and we teach that outside of stimulus as much as possible so that it's conditioned, so that it that conditioning carries over into the dog. And as I say, sorry, into the, the session, the actual training where we want to use it. Mm. And I think what's important is that we don't try and skip any of that, but then we realize that a conditioned response only gets so far, like when the dog he was conditioned laying on the couch, anything he'd click and come running. But when he saw the cat, the click had almost no effect. Mm. He heard it, he knew it, he knew what to do, but there wasn't a reflex response to come around. And we have to then go, okay, well, in this new environment, we need to make that a reflex response, which is exactly what we did. Yeah. But except that early, it's not going to be a reflex response. And But you need to have put in the groundwork to make it one elsewhere. Mm. Having seen that and knowing that he didn't turn around when he clicked, it'd be so tempting to then on the next the next dog say, "Oh well, it doesn't matter whether we teach the clicker as a reflex response in the early phase, but you do you do need to do that. You definitely need to." I think something that most people have to come to terms with is this is very prone to extinction as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be mindful of that and also explain that to the client, whoever that may be, whether it's a family member or it's general public. So the very positive side of what you've done is that you saw a dramatic effect over a period of time with your sister's cooperation, which was absolutely fantastic, a mm -hmm. massive credit to her. The thing for us, like all of us, you and I and anyone listening to this podcast, is once we go into this type of training methodology, what we've got to come to terms with is that a lot of people won't follow through with this. Yeah, that's right. And it's you know it's at no fault of the dog for, for exhibiting the behavior because sometimes the dog just simply cannot help it. It just doesn't understand. A lot of, like I've mentioned this before and I mentioned this to reg regulator people, a lot of people label the dog as a badly behaving dog. You know, they say its mm -hmm. behavior is woeful, its behavior is terrible. Like most people that I see for private lessons, and I'm sure you do the same, They'll give you a list of all the things that the dog is doing badly and suggest that the dog understands and comes to terms with the fact that I'm a badly behaved dog. Yeah, dogs I'm just doing do, this on purpose. Dog, yes, that's right. And dogs just do behavior. They just do behavior. They experiment through life and find out, well, this is getting me what I want. I'm relieving pressure by mm -hmm. doing this type of behavior. I enjoy it. It makes me feel good in doing the behavior. Or it's been re reinforced from a very early age. Like take, for example, jumping off the greyhound and the cat 
situation but still talking about the application of behavior one of the things that drives people mad that i see over and over again is a dog jumping up on them Mm. and i'll ask them a question how long have you had this dog for and i'll say oh well had it since a puppy eight weeks of age and i said i bet it was really cute when it was a puppy right and i'll say oh yeah yeah really cute and i'll say um so when you when your dog was a puppy what did you often like tell me about how you would go out and they'd say, oh, you're so cute, you know, jump up on my legs. I say, stop. What did he do? He jumped up on my legs. What did you do after he jumped up on your legs? I picked him up and kissed him. Yeah. And I said, right. So for six months of his life, he's been conditioned to accept that that's a perfectly acceptable behavior. Mm -hmm. You've taught him that jumping up from that early age all the way to six months of age was cute and adorable and he would be reinforced somehow. So jumping up on you, the dog felt good about it. He, he felt double good about it, the fact that you picked him up and cuddled him and squeezed him and gave him food or started throwing a toy around. And yeah. I said, all of a sudden, it didn't become cute. It became uh, painful. Uh, it became laborious when the dog would do it because the dog is larger and heavier and its nails have grown. It slobber on you. It'd get saliva all over your work clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Now the dog is thinking to itself, why am I not getting what I should have got? Maybe I need to try harder. Because mm. the dog is then locked into that intermittent schedule of reinforcement where sometimes you might come home, be happy to see the dog. It jumps at you, praise it. Other times you're mad at the dog. So the dog thinks, right, okay, instead of repeating this behavior less often, the dog is thinking to itself, maybe I need to be better at jumping on you. Yeah. Maybe I need to jump higher and scratch you harder. Mm. Now the dog is not thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I need to get your attention by digging my claws into you. The dog is thinking, how did I, how do I get that? endorphin kick again yeah how do i get recognized for for all this type of behavior i'm doing and the dog's only crime along the way was that he quadrupled in size exactly yeah it's just a growth thing it wasn't anything else he just didn't become as cute that's all that changed that's all that changed yeah i often people sort of freak out because my dogs jump all over me i let them i love it but i can tell them not to that's that's a big difference i see i think lots of dog trainers have dogs that look unruly Mm -hmm. and they are to an extent but they can control it like when I come, when I open the door, um, my dogs aren't in the house anymore, but when I open the back door, it's a disaster. They jump all over me and they kiss and cuddle, but I love it. And I wouldn't, if, for example, I need to, that to not happen, if I'm wearing clothes and I don't want the dogs jumping all over or whatever. But you're not Mr. and Mrs. Joe Smith. No, that's right. You but find this that is what, highly intolerable. But people then need to understand that you can have both. You can, totally can have both. You can have a dog that jumps all over because people say, oh, I want the affection. Like I like, that's, that's the point in having a dog. And I agree that that is a large part of having the dog is you get affection from them. But- on the day you're walking outside in your tuxedo, you just before you open the door, you say, sit. Yep. And they, they have to sit. Mm. And you do whatever you need to do and you can release them with a and like a, a relaxation cue, like a calm cue where they can say, okay, well, I'm not allowed to burst out of this. I can go over and get pat gently. Yep. So it, that's one thing that annoys me and people say, oh, it's annoying like 90% of the time, but I do reinforce it that 10%, of which is enough to keep it alive forever yeah. because I like it when I come home. I come home sad. I like it when he jumps on me. I just don't like it when I come home in my tuxedo and he jumps on me. It's like, well, then teach a different behavior. If you want to keep it, exactly. if you want to keep both, you have to teach it, it. Picture it as a learned behavior that you've taught the dog to do mm. and now teach him a different behavior that you can put on cue and, and do it. I actually started filming a video once and never put it together and i'd say tuxedo because i do exactly I, in this video i do exactly that so i had a video of me coming home and getting mobbed by both my dogs and saying look i understand this isn't always what you want to do 
and then like star wash, I'm standing there in a tuxedo. Because <laughs> when the dogs were inside, from outside, I could just knock on the door. They'd come flying to the door and I'd say, get in your box. And they both run and get in their boxes, in their crates in the house. And I open the door and walk in and they're both waiting in the crate. I just never finished putting the video together. And now I don't have dogs that are inside, so I, I, I can't do that. You know there's going to be demand for this video now because yeah, yeah. you've just announced that you're doing yeah. it. So people, especially Paul Doyle, he's going to say, oh, where's my video? <laughs> He'll just be happy that his name got mentioned. Of course he will. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's really the story. It's not a long episode, but I, I wanted to explain that because... Yeah, it's a good story. It's very beneficial for people who are learning about behaviour because stories like this give people an understanding of what they need to do in order to condition better behavior from the dog. Yeah. And it's a very similar process. We did that whole episode on the box and there's loads of people I see out there now using the box. Mm. And this is essentially the same thing minus the box. It's yep. that the principles are all the same. You're teaching the dog like you must eat this when I give you the opportunity, no matter what happens around you. And that that's great for a dog who is generally sensitive mm. or if you just want to toughen full stop, but in this is, okay, this is a specific thing we want to work on. So we, we don't need the box. We don't need like random noises and that sort of thing. We just need the stimuli. Yeah. Um, the dog is quite a, a strong, stable, happy dog. He's he's, a, he's actually a really great greyhound. Mm. So there's no point in trying to, you know, do it indirectly. I'm sure that indirectly would work. If we did the box thing, it would just be a longer process. Whereas we can, this is a specific problem. We can target it and fix it immediately. Mm. Uh, and this that's how we did it. And I'm no greyhound expert. That's the only. That's the one and only one I've put through this program. But what I would love to do is, if you're a trainer at a level where you think that you can incorporate all that, there'd be some of the things that we've said for you know average pet people that are listening may not understand the whole thing and be able to implement it. But if you are a trainer and you understand that whole process, I'd love to hear about other people implementing Their it success and giving stories. it a go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, even that one, I'd like to see people try and implement that sort of system and see, because I've only done it the one time, yep. um, but with an overwhelming success. Uh, so I'd love to hear about if anyone else can do that. And over the next few months, if you if you get an opportunity to, to, to do a case like that, let us know how it goes. Oh, so one of the things that's winding up from what you're talking about, if you recall that video I did when I was in Fiji, when I was talking just about mm -hmm. some of the rules in general, one of the points that I made, which I think uh, is poignant in most points, is that some of the best dog trainers I've met, when people are talking about from good to great, which there's been books written about how people proceed from being the average good, which there is a glut of people that are, into moving into greatness. It's about just those, some of those little things that they do, mm -hmm. being patient, paying more attention, and in particular to dog trainers, I, f I really find that a lot of people that I'm interviewing, a lot of people I'm speaking to, a lot of people I'm, I'm attending their seminars, they are all doing pretty much one practice is they're not feeding their dogs out of dog bowls. Yeah. They're making them the source of everything glorious in the universe. So mm -hmm. the dog realizes my survival is based on performing for this person. Mm -hmm. And the dog doesn't look at it as aversive. The dog is looking at it as... This glorious human being is gives me the opportunity. Gives me opportunities and, and is cohabitating with me in such a wonderful way that the dog is thinking, I can make you give me food mm -hmm. by simply by doing alternate behaviors. And if you have convinced your dog to do that, then you are talking to your dog. You are communicating well. And fundamentally, that is one thing that we're all striving to do is communicate better with our dogs, not speaking entirely different languages and just storming out of the room because nobody understands what's going on in the conversation. Yeah, it's exciting that, that training in general is going towards that way where exactly as you say, the dog feels in control. Yeah. The days of, oh, you have to 
put your put his dog in his place and you spit know, in his mouth and well, the, so just this morning on my way here a woman came over to me was talking about she just saw me training Remy and then came over and wanted to talk about dogs she's got an issue with a cavoodle and had had people come out there and it was hyper dog aggressive and all kinds of issues and one of the advice they gave was to throw a chain on the ground in front of the dog when he's being aggressive and it just everything she talked to me some of the other things and everything that they were saying was just so archaic and <laughs> like I'm sure would work out of a fear response. Look, sometimes it does work. I mean it can be a disruptor of behaviors, but like we said, if if you know better, do better. Yeah. But it's good to know that there's loads of people out there that are like They're transforming. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. They are. They're 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 becoming they're awakening to the possibility. I mean, even like I've said before, Ed Frawley, who's in Lieberg. He made a, a blog about how wrong he was about feeling about a clicker, and I've felt the same way. And I've talked about this before. And I, mm. I mean, you came in, you come into dog training at a pretty good stage. Mm. Your uh, migration into dog training is you, you've had good mentors, and you've had access to very good systems where people have still been experimenting with old forms of training. It's what we knew, and we we spoke about this with Chad the other day in his podcast yeah. as well. It's yeah. what we knew at the time. Yeah. So we thought we knew everything that was right until we've seen alternate or better methods of doing it. Yeah. And let's face it, we're in this business because we're totally in love with dogs. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And, you know, I reckon with my dog, if you would ask him, if he could answer and say, okay, who's in charge in this relationship? Who's the dominant one? He'd be like, it's me. Yeah. And And I'm totally okay with that. And he, in his mind, he's like, this idiot says to do all these things. I do them. I love doing them because they're fun. And then he feeds me. Like, what a moron. And if you've achieved the illusion of control in that sort of situation, you won. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what we call win-win. So he feels great. He knows how to control me Mm. and the environment and to find success in everything that he does. And along the way, he's doing all the things that I want him to do. Awesome. You can't ask for a better situation, right? Yep. But I have no, there's no problem with me. If you, if he were to say, yeah, this idiot just pays me for doing stuff <laughs> I, I was going to do anyway. Like, that's fantastic. It is. It's it, great. Well, why do you sit when he tells you sit? I don't know. I do it. I mm. like it. it. And then he pays me. What a moron. I don't think there's anything better. It's perfect. Yeah, it is. All right. It's a good place to leave it. It is. Okay, so that's an, it for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Jump on to whatever subscription service you are listening to us from and give us a, a like, share, comment, review, whatever you can do. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that on Facebook is the best way. Just send us a message there. On Facebook, we are The Canine Paradigm. We'll have some pictures and reference material, and I promise that we'll – you know what? I'm going to do it as soon as we finish recording. I'm going to put up the Jesus Christ in Richmond Park. Oh, yeah, um, you must. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you can all watch Fenton. Oh, before we do go – before we do our final wrap-up, I know you've just done the whole spiel. I know, but I've got one thing I've got to say. Okay. All right, I'm going to be quick. Brent Dry is the Australian representative of D-Town Gear. Mm-hmm. He's going to give us a, a training burst. Oh, cool. So we're going to have a competition in our next podcast. And, uh, yeah, so that's going to be one of the prizes. Awesome. Yeah. So if you want to know more about the D-Town Gear, you can go over to the Canine Company's website, mm-hmm. and we'll put that up for you at some stage when we're running the competition. And Paul Doyle, you're in with a chance to get that now. <laughs> he already, I'm sure he, he already, he's probably already got five. He's bought two of them. Whatever color <laughs> they come in, he's got, he's got them. Thank uh, you very much, Brent and Kat. Really appreciate your generous offer there. Yeah, that's great. And that's awesome. uh, yeah, it's nice for our listeners to be able to have a prize, a prize, a genuine prize. How exciting. Okay. <laughs>